So, Allison, we're in the post-4th of July fog, the day after the 4th, and we're back in the office, so thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. So, we're chatting before this. I think Eco Northwest is uh, just a really interesting company because you guys are kind of the people behind some of these big issues. Um, you're helping research and providing counsel. So I want to learn about what you guys do and in, in your in your role as well. So for the folks that don't know, can you just, you know, what does Eco Northwest do and kind of your history? Yeah. Um, okay. So we're one of those companies that's been around the Pacific Northwest for over 40 years. Um, there's people who know exactly who we are. And we're like the Coca-Cola, the type of service we provide um, in Oregon and in Washington. But for others, they've never heard our name before. And the name itself doesn't really give it away. Right, right. Um, so what it is, is an economics consulting firm. You say that and people are as mystified by the term <laughs> yeah. economics yeah. as they are by marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what we do is essentially give people answers to very complex questions um, and those questions um, almost across the board relate to the scarcity of the resources that we use in our daily lives. So that can be anything from the water that uh, collects in our communities and that we use or that we're trying to protect. It could be the roads that we're driving on and how do we um, figure out how to take care of those roads. Um, it could be uh, building additional housing, increasing land supply, uh, figuring out population projections for regions. Um, but essentially at the core of everything that we do is, is um, analysis of data to figure out the internal workings of everything that humans come into contact with in life um, using microeconomics. Yeah, do it. and we'll talk about some specific products you guys have worked on, and maybe some you're working on now. But one, so you lead all the marketing and does development here, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and <laughs> you've been here two or three years. Or? Uh, I've been here since 2013, okay. and I've been in the AEC industry for about nine years now. Okay, and uh, we've met before. You know, we worked together at Oregonian, and you have really interesting backgrounds, and we have in common a little bit. But you actually were a book publisher, correct? So, um, and you still kind of do that a little bit, but tell me about how <laughs> you went from book publishing to this role and just uh, the book publishing mm -hmm. is something I know you're still passionate about. Yeah. So, uh, Student loans. No, <laughs> kidding. Kidding, kind of. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in California. I got my bachelor's degree in English uh, down there. And uh, as soon as I got the piece of paper saying I graduated, I freaked out. And said, <laughs> what am I going to do right. with a degree in English? Like most of us, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I had spent most of my life really just reading a lot and um, traveling and enjoying this crazy world that we live in and studying history and all that and really nothing that makes you a living. So, um, you know, as my parents were like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I thought, well, I love music, but I can't play any instruments. I'm probably never going to create anything new. I love museums. I love art, but I'm never going to probably make something that goes on the wall. Um, but I sure as heck love talking about all of it and um, celebrating the things in life that I think make it worth living. And so I decided, well, let's try publishing. And Portland State University has an excellent uh, writing and publishing program. And I got accepted into that for the master's uh, uh, in writing uh, track. And so I came up here for that. And um, very quickly, 
was singled out for the marketing group. And okay. at the time, I had no idea what marketing really meant. <laughs> and um, all it really meant was that you could stand by the um, desk where they sell the books at book launches and get people <laughs> excited enough to buy a book. Yeah. Um, and you do that by talking to the author, by engaging the crowd, by talking about the subject matter and, um, and making it something that's um, relatable in a contextual and meaningful and precious way. So I started um, feeling like, okay, this might be something I could do for a living. Um, and myself and four other intrepid <laughs> students in the program decided it would be a great idea to um, essentially crowdsource before there was such a thing, raise money and start a publishing company here in town. So how did you guys uh, raise money? Um, well, uh, one of the um, members had a, a very small publishing company that he started on his own, and he had um, gotten in good with Sisters of the Road, a local nonprofit that works with um, people experiencing houselessness. And they had on their hands like 70,000 pages of um, transcripts that the University of Washington had um, pulled together um, of interviews with people living on the streets in Portland. And it covered everything from uh, what it's like to uh, be a, a pet owner when you're living without a home or interactions with police or um, safety if you're a woman. And so the book was called Voices from the Street and we're the ones that um, ended up putting it together. And it, um, the money that we got from doing that book helped kind of bankroll um, right. future projects. And then we had some investors. And um, I think all told, we made about a dozen books. And they were great. And yeah. I have them on my bookshelf <laughs> about as far as yeah. they went out into the world. And I know I interrupted you, but the name of the publishing company was? Oh, it was Ink and Paper right. Group, mm -hmm. which is still such an awesome name. It and, is. Um, hoping at some point to resurrect it. Yeah, revive it. Yeah. So how did you, you know, kind of decide to, to leave that or still mm -hmm. do that and come into uh, you know, marketing full-time and, and get in. And uh, urban planning yeah, and community yeah. planning, all that. So, um, I, well, a number of things happened all at once. Um, borders closed. Um, the, the distributors, which um, if you're familiar with the way books are released, you print books, they go to these giant warehouses. And when bookstores uh, make orders, the distributors are the ones that distribute the books out into the world. Distributors started going under. So um, all of a sudden, a lot of publishers had no way of getting their books to market. Um, E-readers started to become a thing. And essentially, there was just a ton of uncertainty that had entered into the publishing world. And um, and it really caused a lot of disruption for several years. Mm -hmm. So we started to see, oh, wow. Okay, we're making a little bit of profit here. Every single uh, dime went right back into the company. So none of us were actually bringing home right. a paycheck at all. Mm -hmm. And that went on for three years. And that's essentially living on credit cards and a dream. Yeah. Um, which was also uh, right around the time that my student loans <laughs> from <laughs> so, so, this wonderful master's real. degree <laughs> um, started to um, like become this not so smoky off in the future thing. And I started to panic big time. So 
I put out some feelers and there was a proposal coordinator um, position that was opening up at a local urban planning firm Mm -hmm. called MIG. And um, I reached out to uh, them. I I happened to know someone who worked there and she said, actually, I thought of you for this um, because what you learn in publishing is very similar to proposal coordination um, writing, editing, uh, InDesign, right. uh, being able to juggle multiple deadlines and keep your cool, mm-hmm. be articulate. So I jumped into that and um, almost immediately realized that the subject matter was so meaty to what they did, um, you know, re reimagining what the Saturday market was going to be, which they got involved in, um, learning about how Portland came to be and all of the good and bad planning efforts over time. Um, learning that government um, on the federal level, all the way down to uh, the city level um, and, and, and the various agencies that they don't actually do all the work themselves. They contract out a ton of taxpayer money to consultants. And how do those consultants get that work? And there's this bridge that exists between the government side of work and the consultants. And um, I ended up becoming that bridge. And once I was in, it, it was like the tuning fork resonated. I'm like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And so now I want to talk about some of the projects you guys work on here. And like I said, these are like really important projects to not only the city, but the state. I know you guys do stuff nationally too. And um, kind of start with just housing. You know, oh, it's gosh, on everybody's yeah. mind. I know you guys mm-hmm. do a lot of work. And, um, you know, when I was at the Oregonian, you sh- shared kind of this study or map of research you guys are working on. So I want to know where that's at and if you can talk about it. And then a couple other things. So um, can you talk about just that, yeah. that housing map that you guys were working on? Well, it, that's kind of the crazy part about Echo Northwest is if you think of a community as like a quilt of all sorts of different things from um, how you zone it and how you use the land to um, where you're putting the roads to where you're putting the houses. Our company gets involved at every single stage. And this one's no exception. Um, so Portland was the first state in the country to establish urban growth boundaries. They got the idea from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Louisville was the first city in the country to do it. And it was the horse farmers trying to protect the horse farms around Kentucky. Interesting. Think Kentucky Derby, think mm-hmm. horse racing. That was a big, big deal over there. And they had a lot of clout. And um, and um, by basically by putting a ring around a city, you um, take everyone's considerations uh, basically into and you fold it into planning efforts and it can come up with some really interesting um, uh, just dif- differences in how you plan going forward. So Tom McCall, um, who was governor at the time, instituted the urban growth boundaries. Well, um, after that, there, there was a land commission that um, was created and our founder was involved in it. So from the beginning of the urban growth boundaries, Echo Northwest kind of had a seat at the table um, in deciding when it gets uh, grown or pulled out. Um, there, are, there's, uh, there are triggers in place for it. Um, so if you go below a certain amount of undeveloped acreage within the UGB, it triggers an expansion. Um, but, and that's just population-driven. 
But the question then becomes, where do you expand it out? You don't just pull it in every single direction in a perfect circle. So you you pull it out and incorporate Damascus or Helvetia or, you know, the area that's turning into South Cooper Mountain. Right. Um, and so we're in the process of doing that um, right now in the South, the South Beaverton, uh, Tigard area right now. Um, but because of because of the urban growth boundary, we've gotten extremely um, creative in a lot of our planning efforts that have made Portland kind of an incubator for urban planning ideas and stuff that's been outsourced to other communities. And it's a great thing in, in a lot of respects. But um, incubator slash guinea pig. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but on the, the flip side of that, uh, and this goes back to some of the fundamental um, parts of economics, is supply and demand. Um, we've created a really awesome place to live, work, and play. Um, it's a place that's gotten a lot of advertising, free advertising, yeah. um, through Portlandia and um, just – you know, our craft beers and all sorts of things, dump town, you know, they're being outsourced, pock, pock, whatever it might be. Um, people are starting to look at Portland as a place that they want to call home. Well, um, there are a lot of people moving here and, um, it, they happen to be moving here at a time when construction is more expensive than ever. And so the cost of building new buildings is, um, extremely expensive and in order to make it pencil out for the developers um they have to set the prices at a certain amount and those prices are pretty much out of reach of the average person's salary um and when we talk about the word affordable housing to some people that means for anyone to have housing like um if you're below the poverty line just to get into something that you can you can afford to be in. But what, when we say it, what we mean is that it's no more than 30% of your take home pay. Um, and so if you actually, it's your gross pay. Um, so if, if you look at like an overview of the Metro area, and this gets to the map that you were, uh, that you talked about earlier, um, and you look over time from like, say the year 2000 and then say project out to 2020. And then you parcel it out into small little regions of um, the city. And then you color those by affordability. So green, yellow, red. Um, and then you look at that over time, you can see areas in town becoming extremely unaffordable and then going back to affordable with the ebbs and flows of recession, downturns, economic growth um, cycles and whatnot. Um, but the trajectory that we're on now, if everything stays constant, um, the entire metro region is going to be unaffordable by most people's um, living standards by 2020. So we did a project with the Portland Housing Center. Um, and if you go on their website, you can click on these maps and you can see uh, um, the areas of town that that are um, extremely red. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, when I was playing with the map, like I said, it's almost every neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it's a little scary, but... Um, yeah, well, and it's also the green is getting further and further and further out. Right. Um, and so... You know, if you if you take it one step further, 
the housing crisis of today is the transportation crisis of tomorrow. Because um, while people might still be able to swing that one or two bedroom in the city center with some roommates, mm-hmm. by the time they, they, if they decide to settle down or start a family, you're gone. You got to leave. Um, you got to go far out. But your job isn't usually following you. Right. So now every day you got to get back in. But we don't have the arterials and the transportation infrastructure in place um, to support the weight of that much commute. And we all know what the traffic is like already. Yeah. So we're in this, we're in a real boiling kettle right now of issues trying to figure out how, how do we, how do we get a handle on this? And, and so our role is essentially giving them all of the facts to say, this is exactly what is going on. And then also helping them look at what the potential consequences would be of different types of decisions, um, whether it's rent stabilization measures, um, inclusionary zoning, density bonuses, that kind of thing. And, wow. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's just uh, pretty fascinating how important the work you guys do. And, and another big, you know, we were talking about this before, another big thing you, you guys were involved with that I think is uh, really interesting and the most people do too is the cannabis you yeah. know, economy here. <laughs> now, you know, you guys were hired to really look at the um, consequent, the tax consequences, mm-hmm. right? How much revenue would it be bring in? And I, I think we were chatting a couple months ago, and uh, it surpassed even your guys' estimates. Uh-huh. So can you talk about how you guys got engaged in that and just yeah, where yeah. where it's at right now? Because it's, it's more the fun stuff. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was also a really tricky um, economic question, though. Is how do you figure out what the what the potential revenues would be from taxing a product that had been black market and gray market mm-hmm. before that. How do you know what the market is? Right. And um, several different um, economists threw out numbers. Ours was definitely the closest. Um, we worked with, uh, I believe it was uh, um, some folks at uh, Oregon State University that have or it might be University of Oregon, sorry, for the beavers and ducks out there, um, that they're basically like the preeminent um, experts on the black and gray markets of um, cannabis. And so, and it's like analyzing everything from the quote-unquote wake and bakes that are very heavy, heavy users of, of recreational marijuana, all the way to people that um, treat it as almost like wine tasting, you know, and they just want to go out and have fun every once in a while with that. Um, and so we had uh, predicted, I think, around $40 million in the first fiscal um, cycle. And it was it was very close to that. Um, but so now what happens is it did get legalized. And I'm wondering if maybe the um, findings of that didn't help but push it over you know, the threshold, or if it was just time, um, people were ready to do it here. But now we have an entire new industry that has opened up to the state. And, um, and now the types of project work we're seeing are around communities trying to figure out what role um, cannabis, the production of it, manufacturing of it, or all of the ancillary things around it, um, what that plays in their local economy, mm-hmm. and um, say say Grants Pass, for mm-hmm. instance, my hometown, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, in Josephine County, yeah. 
Um, you know, everyone talks about how they came for the gold, but it was the trees that kept them there. And the lumber industry uh, or the timber industry um, took a huge hit, as everyone knows, in the 80s and 90s. And um, Grants Pass, Josephine County, it's been really, really hard to get good paying jobs um, for people that live there and provide fam- family wage incomes. And um, uh, so much so that the tax base has really crumbled and they've lost a lot of their services, including their sheriff. <laughs> my parents live. Yeah. Like, there's, yeah. No, there's like one you know, sheriff for the whole county, which uh-huh. is huge if you know down there. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but it also happens to be essentially like Napa Valley conditions for growing cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the right type of soil, it's the right type of climate. And um, so we're seeing some of the Southern Oregon um, st- uh, areas trying to figure out, should we go with a female plant or the male plant? Because you can't have both. If you have male plants, female plants anywhere near each other, they cross pollinate and it ruins everything. So you go female plant, there's your recreational marijuana. If you go with the male plant, there's some medicinal as well as textile options. Um which market's going to perform better? Which one's going to have the most demand? This job has really demand. taught you a lot about cannabis. Huh? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then you've got the tribes that are um, a lot of different tribes around the Northwest that are trying to figure out, um, you know, how how can they um, how can they incorporate the ideas of, of um, recreational cannabis being something that's now legal everywhere? Um, what does that mean for them? And, you know, buying or selling on reservations versus other places. And so, yeah, very interesting stuff. Wow. So, you know, you, your daily job is you're, you know, reviewing all this data and analysis. So how do you feel as this, you know, a person living and working in Portland and then, you know, as a marketing kind of executive, just the future of this area. I mean, it's an exciting time to be here, right? There's obviously lots of challenges as we grow. And I like to ask this, it's, but, uh, you know, I think it's a great place to live still and, and people get seduced when they live, move here and they don't want to leave. So, um, do you see, knowing all this, do you see a lot of opportunities still as we're growing or are you hopeful that we're going to figure it all out? And <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this not that long ago about, um, oh gosh, this was only about two years ago. Um, the Portlandia effect, mm-hmm. which is, um, a large number of humanitarian degrees, like um, uh, the, the what is it, the left, no, the right side of the brain, the creative side of the brain, um, philosophy majors, English majors. Um, there aren't a whole lot of jobs that um, are in art history up here or in the arts period, but we attract a lot of people that um, want that kind of lifestyle, want it, that to be their contribution to society. So um, that's something I'm really worried about is uh, that we still maintain places within our city that are friendly to the arts community and that we don't drive that away. And already you're seeing a lot of the maker spaces and the artist lofts and stuff in the inner Southeast, they're all endangered. And um, I'd say the artist in general is kind of endangered in the city of Portland. The things that helped make Portland weird in the first place um, could very well get um, kind of shuffled out um, because of the affordability issues. Um, you hear a lot of talk about um, tech, you know, um, 
Puppet Labs and uh, JAMA and others, and they are calling this place home. But, um, you know, our legislature's dealing with some pretty weighty uh, tax conversations that might make it really hard for startups to uh, get going here Um, or for larger companies and the big, big companies like Intel or Nike to decide, yeah, I still want to call this home. So I'd say it's kind of a mixed bag um, in terms of the next several years um, on if Portland is going to stay the city that we know and love it as, or if it's going to, um, if it's going to dramatically change or not. Right. Well, we'll be here writing it out. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I would say there's two areas to really keep your eye on. Mm-hmm. Really exciting. One is, um, uh, well, it's two cities, is Milwaukee and Oregon City. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening down there. Um, Milwaukee is still affordable, and you're starting to see some artist enclaves there. Dark Horse Comics is there. They're, they've got a big master plan that they're kicking around. Um, they're investing in the local community. But there's also just a lot of interesting plans going in to revitalize the area. Um, but then Oregon City is also sitting on one of the most attractive tourist um, destinations in the state, that has been closed to the public for the last century. And that's the um, Willamette Falls Um, and Blue Heron Press um, or uh, the paper mill. I mean, Blue Heron paper mill went under and it just sat fallow and uh, abandoned for many years. And so Oregon city decided let's reopen the falls. And um, we've been working on uh, that site with um, several awesome consultants here in town and Oregon City and Clackamas County, looking at everything from um, market analysis on putting in a brew pub or hotel uh-huh. or, or um, mixed use commercial residential right by the falls, all the way to reopening the Willamette Locks so that you have a full river that boats can, f- for the first time since like the 60s, travel from the the top half of the falls all the way to the bottom half. Wow. That's um, great. Yeah. Which um, all sorts of tours and possibilities there. So that's one area to keep your eye on. And the other area is Scapoose, um, where a massive uh, campus for engineering um, studies is going to go in. It's kind of bankrolled by uh, a bunch of different corporations boeing being one of the largest is but, it attached to a university or uh, portland community college is playing a, a a big role in it um it's gonna be um really really well-paying jobs but at the cost of going to a community college wow um so the, the jobs that you're gonna get coming out of here are jobs that you could have anywhere in the world or you could stay right at home um that pay extremely well and um, they, they, uh, Betsy Johnson, um, she, uh, it, it, I keep my eye on her. She should run for governor someday, I think. Um, she helped make this whole thing happen. And um, it's going to absolutely transform uh, Scapoose. And it's far enough away from Portland that it's not going to be a suburb. Um, yeah. So that's an area that if you've ever thought about getting a little further out, probably a good time to buy land. I have a lot of friends that were, are looking to move there, actually. Uh-huh. It's a good time to get in because okay. um, it's going to get a ton of services. Insider tip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for everyone listening. Yeah. So, well, great, Allison. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the work you guys do is just really interesting. So, thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Thank you. Thank you.